0: Now forget anything fun and open your Bible to Lamentations chapter (laughs) 4. No fun. I'm not going to make any jokes. Maybe one or two if they're appropriate, but I doubt that they will be. Lamentations chapter 4. My dad tried to warn me that if I kept doing drugs, I would wake up one day homeless and destitute. I never believed him. But thankfully, the Lord intervened in my life before I got to that point because plenty of people have, in fact, had that experience and are having it still. Our Heavenly Father warned His chosen nation, Israel, that if they did not obey His wonderful statutes and if they then persisted in disobedience, they would wake up one day homeless and destitute. God made a covenant with Israel, giving them his statutes about 1406 B.C. is the date that I was able to drag out of the commentaries. God struggled with their disobedience for the greater part of the next 800 years. There were high points, but many low points. In 586 B.C., their sins finally caught up to them as the Chaldean army of King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon broke through the gates, burned the city, destroyed the temple... And took captive those they did not kill. God said this in 1406, and Israel as a nation agreed to these terms. First, he listed some wonderful things he would do for them if they obeyed, but then, beginning in Leviticus 26 14, he says, But if you do not obey me, and do not observe all these commandments, and if you despise my statutes, or if your soul abhors my judgments so that you do not perform all my commandments but break my covenant, I also will do this to you. And then just uh, a long list of terrible consequences follows, including verse 29. You shall eat the flesh of your sons and you shall eat the flesh of your daughters. Going forward 800 years, we read in Lamentations 4.10, the hand of the compassionate women have cooked their own children. They became food for them in the destruction of the daughter of my people. And so the, uh, they, they resorted to cannibalism and to be technical, this is necro-cannibalism, which is eating human flesh after someone has died rather than murdering them to eat them. Uh, so we want to uh, probably keep that clear. It's, a, uh, it's an important distinction, no jokes. I'll bet no Israelite ever thought that it could possibly come to that. 800 years earlier when they were receiving the law and God was saying, I'm going to bless your socks off, it's going to be the land's gonna be flowing with milk and honey. You're gonna have crops in abundance. You're gonna have blessings and all the other nations of the world will bow down to you. And then he says, now, guys, if you disobey and if you persist in disobedience, I'm gonna to have to besiege you with foreign armies and it's gonna be rough and you're gonna end up in such, dis, uh, so destitute and so hungry that you're, you're gonna cook your own children and eat them. And nobody, nobody ever thought that that was going to happen. Why do we not heed God's warnings? That's a sub-theme tonight as we work through another terrifying chapter of Lamentations. Verse 1, how the gold has become dim, how changed the fine gold. The stones of the sanctuary are scattered at the head of every street. The precious sons of Zion, valuable as fine gold, how they are regarded as clay pots, the work of the hands of the potter. Solomon's once glorious temple was scattered all over the city. As beautiful and as extravagant as the temple had been, God looked upon his people as far more beautiful and valuable. They, and we would say us, we are the pearl of great price on this earth that the Lord was willing to give everything in order to redeem Shifting illustrations mid-verse, God reminds them that he was the potter and nations are the clay. In the famous passage in Jeremiah where we're told God is the potter and we are the clay, we learn that God molds a nation according to their obedience or their disobedience. Listen, whenever you hear or read about God being the potter and men being the clay, remember he was talking about himself in relation to the nations of the world and the key factor was their choice to obey him or to disobey him. God doesn't portray himself in Scripture as a potter who makes arbitrary decisions, some vessels for destruction, disregarding their free will choices. There are those who try to lift that illustration out of the Scripture and say, see, there's a passage in Romans that says, see, God just shapes some to honor and some to dishonor. And, And their interpretation is he made some to save and he made some to damn. But if you go to Jeremiah, as we've done many times and referred to it many times because it is important, God says, I'm the potter, you're the clay, and then he talks about nations. He says, if the nation uh, obeys me, I will mold them into something great. If they disobey me, I will mold them into destruction. So remember that. Just tuck that away. Verse 3, even the jackals present their breasts to nurse their young but the daughter of my people is cruel, like ostriches in the wilderness. The tongue of the infant clings to the roof of its mouth for thirst. The young children ask for bread, but no one breaks it for them. Because of the siege, which was nearly three years long, the parents could not properly care for their children. Before you blame God for the suffering of innocent children, remember He warned them 800 years earlier what could and would happen as the consequences of their decisions. A nation that continued to disobey God would be overrun by another nation. In that day and age, that meant siege warfare during which hunger would become so pronounced that necro-cannibalism was necessary to survive. Those were the times in which they lived. God said, I want to bless you. I will bless you. All you have to do is obey me. Not perfectly, uh, you know, but it, here are the statutes. Keep these statutes. One of them was to, every, every seventh year, let the land lie fallow. Just do that. Please, just trust me. I, I, I broke through the Red Sea for you. I've defeated all your enemies. Just trust me and let the land lie fallow and you'll see that I'll provide for you. And the people say, yeah, we're not going to do that. And then they deteriorated into, as we've seen on Sunday mornings, grosser and grosser immoral sin. God says, I want to bless you, but if you persist in your disobedience, I have no option but to judge you for it. And that means since you're a nation, I have to raise up a more powerful nation. And because you're in a city with walls, they're gonna besiege you. And because there's gonna be a siege, you're gonna get hungry. And you're gonna get so hungry that you're gonna do terrible things. And it's that kind of warning that, you know, it's that scared straight warning we talked about a few weeks ago, where, you know, this is how you could end up, and, you know, oh yeah, you laugh at that, yeah, not us. That'll never happen to us. And it, it did. You know, sometimes people bring things on themselves only to wonder why God is allowing it. Uh, we're careful not to blame things on God uh, sometimes I think people say things, though, where they say, oh, you know, this is happening and that's happening. And the proper response is, yes, you are reaping what you have sown. It doesn't mean God doesn't have grace for you. It doesn't mean that you can't be restored. It doesn't mean we're not compassionate. It doesn't mean we're not loving. But I think sometimes the truth is important. Some people, they, they need to confront the fact that I am, I'm actually reaping what I've sown here. Uh, I, I've sown the wind and I'm gonna reap the whirlwind. And so in a word, why God is allowing it is because it's the consequence of their behavior. Verse 5, those who ate delicacies are desolate in the streets. Those who were brought up in scarlet embrace ash heaps. The punishment of the iniquity of the daughter of my people is greater than the punishment of the sin of Sodom, which was overthrown in a moment with no hand to help her. Her Nazarites were brighter than snow and whiter than milk. They were more ruddy in body than rubies like sapphire in their appearance. Now their appearance is blacker than soot. They go unrecognized in the streets. Their skin clings to their bones. It has become as dry as wood. Those slain by the sword are better off than those who die of hunger, for these pine away stricken for lack of the fruits of the field. By the way, you never want to be compared to Sodom. And you certainly don't want to be considered worse off than Sodom. These verses point to the protracted nature of the suffering. You know, it's sometimes better for something to just happen quickly and it be over and done than it be protracted over a long period of time. Uh, And that's what God is saying. You'd be better off if they came and just ran you through with a sword rather than you starve to death. Uh, but either option, not good, Uh, sad, and tragic. Verse 10, the hands of the compassionate women have cooked their own children. They became food for them in the destruction of the daughter of my people. The Lord has fulfilled his fury. He has poured out his fierce anger. He kindled a fire in Zion, and it has devoured its foundations. These two verses should be read together It looks like a comparison. Just like the hands of the compassionate women were forced by necessity to cook their own children, so God was forced by necessity to kindle a fire in Zion that devoured it and its people. He took no pleasure in it. It was something put in motion by their own stubbornness after many, many warnings. Verse 12, the kings of the earth and all the inhabitants of the world Would not have believed that the adversary and the enemy could enter the gates of Jerusalem because of the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests who shed in her midst the blood of the just. They wandered blind in the streets. They have defiled themselves with blood so that no one would touch their garments. They cried out to them, go away, unclean, go away, go away. Do not touch us. When they are fled and wandered, those among the nations said they shall no longer dwell here. The face of the Lord scattered them. He no longer regards them. The people do not respect the priests nor show favor to the elders. Surrounding nations, non-believers, were astonished that Jerusalem could fall. What they did not understand is that God's people were indestructible unless and until they disobeyed him, and then they brought judgment upon themselves. And so the surrounding nations, they knew enough about the history of Israel and the people of Judah to understand that when God was for them, no one could stand against them. Uh, it didn't matter how many chariots or soldiers you had. Nothing, you know. That, uh, I'm sure that in the history of that time, there was still the remembrance that 185,000 Assyrian soldiers were killed in one night as they besieged uh, Israel. Uh, and, and so this was the kind of fear uh, that the foreign nations had, or understanding at least, uh, but now Jerusalem had fallen, and they, they didn't connect the dots, really. They didn't understand that, that God was allowing it because his people had brought it upon themselves. God wasn't just powerful. He was and he is holy. And his people must therefore remain set apart from the sinful practices of this fallen world. As we've seen on Sunday mornings, the, the Jews, they weren't just a little bit worldly, you know, they, they weren't, uh, you know, what we would call carnal Christians. They were non-believers who were worshiping idols, committing gross sexual immorality and uh, sacrificing their own children. And, and, and God waited and waited through each generation uh, for many, many hundreds of years before he brought this judgment. Israel could never be destroyed from without by an enemy unless she destroyed herself first from within. Verse 17, still our eyes failed us, watching vainly for our help. In our watching, we watched for a nation that could not save us. I wish I could capture the sadness or maybe we'd say the pathos of this verse. The Jews in their distress, besieged by the Babylonians, you know, reduced to necro-cannibalism, were looking for another nation to come to their aid and their defense. They especially look to Egypt, but as we've seen, the Babylonians defeated the Egyptian army at the Battle of Carchemish. And so you're in Jerusalem. You're there in the shadow of Solomon's temple and all of its glory up to a certain point with the actual presence of the Lord in the tabernacle. And you think, I wonder if Egypt will help us. Let's look to Egypt. I mean, these people are pretty far gone. It always astonishes us, doesn't it, when people reject Jesus because they don't see how he can solve their problem. A lot of times people, they know you're a Christian and and in their time of of struggle or problem, they'll turn to you uh... or at least you know open up to you and then when you start to talk about jesus they they think you don't understand what they're going through they need money uh... they need a a mate they need whatever it might be you know they need a new job they need whatever it is that that is a a problem for them maybe they need a physical healing or or whatever uh, and then you say, well, you know, what you really need is Jesus Christ, a relationship with him. How does that, what does that have to do with anything? And, of course, we know that it has everything to do with it. Uh, that's the real starting point because our issues are essentially spiritual. And even if nothing changes the moment after you accept Christ, everything has really changed. Uh, and it's a beautiful thing. But so... You know, this is a a good outward picture of that. it's It's like, you know, God is right there in the temple. They still have the word of God. They actually even have Jeremiah prophesying, telling them what to do. And they say, Egypt sounds really good. They've got chariots. What we need right now is a few hundred chariots to attack the Babylonians. And essentially what they were going through was that, hey, we just want to be left alone to continue to live this way. And God says, I can't allow you to ruin yourselves like that. I, I, can't, I can't let this nation die because I've promised uh, that I would keep it and protect it. But I, I can't let you go on in your sin either. And so here's what's going to happen. So verse 18, they tracked our steps so that we could not walk in our streets. Our end was near. Our days were over for our end had come. Our pursuers were swifter than the eagles of the heavens. They pursued us on the mountains and lay in wait for us in the wilderness. If a siege lasted long enough and the besieged had storehouses, they might survive. There are sieges in history where the invading army finally gave up or was defeated on some other battlefield. Once the gates fell, however, there was no place to hide from an enemy filled with pent-up rage either in the city or out in the countryside." Verse 20, the breath of our nostrils, the anointed of the Lord was caught in their pits, of whom we said, under his shadow we shall live among the nations. The anointed of the Lord here refers to Zedekiah, who was appointed to govern Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar. If he had followed Jeremiah's godly counsel and surrendered to the city, uh, surrendered the city rather, it would have been spared, but instead he led the nation into Ruin, And it's interesting, uh, worth a whole separate study, that even though Zedekiah wasn't the real king of, of uh, Judah and, and he was appointed by the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar, he still called the anointed of the Lord because that, the position that he held was a position of authority that God recognized over his people. And Zedekiah could have done great good have spared all of this suffering. There's so many opportunities that the Jews had, both the people and the leaders, to spare themselves from this suffering. Verse 21, Rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Edom, you who dwell in the land of Uz. The cup shall also pass over to you, and you shall become drunk and make yourself naked. The punishment of your iniquity is accomplished, O daughter of Zion. He will no longer send you into captivity. He will punish your iniquity, O daughter of Edom. He will uncover your sins." History records the Edomites aiding the Babylonians at the time of the destruction of Jerusalem. These verses tell them that a reckoning was coming later in their future. In fact, there would be a time when God would restore Israel and no longer send them into captivity. However, the Edomites would be uh, definitely judged. And We're going to see some words against Edom in Jeremiah on a subsequent Sunday morning. And so God sits in judgment over all the nations with regard to their behavior and especially their treatment of his people. Uh, Look at the title of this study, what I titled it tonight. How do you read it? Do you read it as God is nowhere or as God is now here? It's interesting, isn't it? All, you run those, it's a, it's a famous wordplay. I didn't make that up. I wish I could take credit for it. Rake uh, Comfort, for example, uses it on gospel tracks. Uh, and it doesn't say anything about you, you know, depending on what you saw first. Don't, don't, don't be condemned. If you think, if you said, oh, God is nowhere, it doesn't mean you're not saved. It's just a great illustration because if you were in Jerusalem cooking your dead children, you could think God is nowhere Or you could understand God is now here in judgment as he said he would be, but here nonetheless. A lot of the time, when there is suffering and tragedy, people accuse God of being nowhere. Where's God? Where's God when it hurts? Why do the godly suffer? Why does anyone suffer? Why did this or why did that happen? The truth is, God is there. He is now here, as it were. He's in the present. He's in the moment, not always in judgment. We're not saying that he's always, you know, that whenever something bad is going on or there's some tragedy, that, hey, that's God's judgment on those people. That's been kind of the default position of many televangelists and radio teachers lately, that every disaster that's befallen uh, the United States, especially tornadoes, hurricanes, floods, you know, whatever it is, that, that it's the finger of God judging those people. I don't think we have enough information. And what we ought to do is just see, hey, people are suffering and we need to go in and, and say to them, God is now here. That's, that's a perfect thing. I mean, it's kind of trite, you know, but, but it really is. To, to a person who thinks God is nowhere because of their loss and their tragedy, you have... The ability to go in and say, God is now here. He loves you. He sent his son to die for you. He's familiar with suffering. He understands death and loss and suffering. And he also has grace and mercy and compassion. uh, He's offering salvation, which often is overlooked. Again, you know, not to minimize anyone's pain or any, any suffering, but the issue is spiritual again it's salvation are you saved uh, w- you know instead of kicking at the goads and saying well if there was a god he wouldn't have allowed this to happen where are you going to go when you die what good is what good is it to get rid of god how are you helped if there is no god you're not you're in worse shape than you were 5 minutes ago god is now here is our message amen